Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are continuing our tour through the outer planes of the Great Wheel cosmology of Dungeons and Dragons. Today we are visiting Bator the Nine Hells, the plane of lawful evil. Now, as full as last week was, and as much as we had to say last week, that we basically have to do a survey course and just kind of touch on things and move on because there was so much to talk about in the Abyss, more so in the Nine Hells. It's just an absolute glut of information. We easily could do an episode on each individual layer of the Nine Hells, unless you want to sit here and listen to us for nine hours straight. Probably not going to happen. In fact, I know it's not going to happen. I don't want to talk for nine hours straight. (laughs) (laughs) I know our our Borea episode, while was fun, in that we were digging for information, and that was a bit of a task for you to try to parse down, and that was still an extremely long episode. Yeah, that one ended up being almost an hour and a half after editing. And really on that one, we thought we did well. We didn't chase too many rabbit trails like we're doing right now. Right. On a very full episode. So let's go and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And like James said, this could easily be a 10 episode topic because in third edition, they did do two source books. One is specifically covering the abyss and one is specifically covering the nine hells. And so there is an absolute glut of content on these two so if you want a more in-depth dive into Bator, go and find yourself a copy of fiendish codex 2 tyrants of the nine hells it is a third edition source book i'm pretty sure that you can get it on either dm's guild or drive through rpg but i do very much recommend it because there's a ton of information in there most of which i had to ignore in order to get a manageable episode outline that said are you going to be dante or virgil tonight um I'm probably going to be Virgil because I'm yeah. the one who made the outline. <laughs> yeah, that, that stands to the reason I was giving you your options there, good sir. So we're going to go ahead and start in. Now, I'm not saying that there's nine circles of hell in Dante's Inferno and there's nine layers of hell in D&D ripoff or anything like that. It's called Inspired, boys and girls. Inspired. It's not plagiarism, it's recycling. That's right. So we're going to go ahead and step into our own personal house. Let's go. All right. (laughs) So the description for the Nine Hells as put in the third edition Man of the Plains and also copied almost verbatim into the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide is it is the ultimate plane of law and evil, the epitome of premeditated crafted cruelty. I mean, that's pretty succinct and you get what's on the cover on this one guys lawful evil devils it's hell it is it's right there it is every corporate lawyer ever yes and i'm sure that there are some corporate lawyers out there who are wonderful people but (laughs) this is every corporate lawyer ever this is vader this is hitler this is charles hest this is probably thomas edison I mean, we can debate whether he was lawful evil or just lawful douchebag. He was probably lawful evil in my opinion, but there you go. Yeah, everything is contract, everything's done by the word, and everything is done to screw you over. Yes, everything is done with the express intent of securing ownership of your soul. Because souls are currency and power in the Nine Hells. So the Nine Hells are primarily populated by the Batezu, which are commonly known as devils. Devils are bound by the lawful nature of the plane to be obedient to their superiors, which means that 
every single devil, with the exception of Asmodeus, who's at the top of the food chain, is scheming and trying to enact plans to subvert their superiors and rise in influence and power. Yeah, trying to get that promotion. Yay for corporate life. That's not saying that Asmodeus is not scheming. Asmodeus is the greatest schemer of all of them, and he is running five million different schemes at once, countering everything that everyone else is throwing at him. Mainly because he is at the top of the food chain. Welcome to your own personal cubicle hell. This is pretty <laughs> much office space on the table. I mean, literally, like, the worst things you can possibly think of the most, what the hell. Literally, what the hell. It's here. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Unlike the abyss which is an infinite collection of layers just sort of haphazardly thrown together with a different very chaotic feel to each individual one and no real rhyme or reason because you know the portals in the abyss don't move you sequentially down the layers you can start off in the first layer and end up in the 42nd layer and end up going through a portal there and end up in the 403rd layer and then then jump into another one and end up back up on the second layer. It's very much like the Master Blaster game in the Nintendo. I think we mentioned that before. We have mentioned that before, yeah. yeah. And so, again, it's very non-linear as levels go. For game design, great. For traveling, it kind of sucks. Yeah. So, by comparison, the layers of the Nine Hells are very clearly defined, very uniform amongst themselves. Each layer has a low point and a high point. The lowest point of the upper layer connects directly to the highest point of the layer below it. And I like this, honestly, when you look at the difference between the Nine Hells and the Abyss, these two really do reflect that difference between lawful and chaotic. I know that whole, you know, morality tree, I forget how exactly how you want a morality chart, I guess, can be a little fuzzy at times. But this, again, where they are extremely clear, rigid, defined lines and definitions in the Nine Hells, where obviously otherwise in the pit is very nebulous. Everything's very mushy, like a big pudding, I guess you could kind of say in a weird way. Again, here, everything is very sharp, very defined, very, very clear, though it's all evil. But again, much easier to say you are exactly here. So this isn't really expressed very well in all of the visual depictions that I've seen of the Nine Hells. But the description, as I understand it, is that each layer is infinite, but there is a finite opening, a donut hole, if you will, in the center that descends further into the pit. It's kind of like the cone of like one of those drumstick ice creams. You know, you have that centerpiece. You just took the ice cream out, so there's plenty of space to go. That's one way to do it. I've seen images and depictions in one way that it's hard for me not to think of because, again, it does say there's a center pit. It's like a screw going down because, again, you do have these very defined layers and levels, and each one leads but doesn't quite blend into the next. Right. And each layer is very different from the one on either side of it. So they are very clearly defined, very clearly different from one another. You are very clear when you get from one to the next that you have changed layers. But the visual depictions that you see, it looks like a bunch of gradually shrinking concentric discs. And as you go down, the disc gets smaller. But that's not what I got from the description as I read it. The description as I read it is that each layer itself is infinite, but there's a finite 
opening in it that you go down to the next layer through this opening. Right. And again, going back a lot of the artists with the various books, with Wizards, with TSR, because the Nine Hells is very much inspired by Dante's Inferno. And Dante's Inferno did run down to a concentric point where at the very center or the very base of the Inferno was Satan. And so everything did run to a funnel point. Again, most of your art, most of your concepts, your ideas kind of mimic that. We even have the City of Dis, which is actually one of my favorite places in the Inferno because it's really super interesting. I think it kind of gets a raw deal here. We'll discuss that in a bit. But even the medieval drawings and things like that, that imagery that's presented with Dante has carried over. With the Game Master's description, again, kind of think like a bunt cake maybe. You know, if you had a bunch of layers and then someone just kind of cored the center out. Think of it like a strip mine. Yeah, that works. Or a quarry, you know, where you work yourself down in layers down to the center. That's a perfect example of it, yes. So, as we said, the lowest point on the higher layer always connects to the highest point on the next layer down. But there is also the pit. And you can always just decide to jump off into the pit and you will land on the next layer. But if you don't have a way to fly or slow your fall, you're going to take a wallop whenever you land. In 3rd edition, it was set as you take 20d6 bludgeoning damage when you land on the next layer if you don't have a way to slow fall or fly. Exactly how many die are in a uh, d6 brick? A brick of d6 is 36. Oh, okay. So it's a little bit more than half a brick. Yeah. So that's a bunch of dice to throw on the table. That is a bunch of dice to throw on the table. That said, you know what? That would actually on any given layer be a great place for a DM to run a battle. It's right on the edge of the layer and try to push someone off like a king of the hill type thing. Yeah. That'd be yeah. actually a lot of freaking fun. And it says that the distance that you fall is subjective, but it always seems to be at least half a mile. So this is terrible of me, but I'm totally envisioning the scene from the first half of Endgame where Doctor Strange has just Loki fall through the portal loop. (laughs) I was falling for 30 minutes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so the Nine Hells as an entity doesn't have any overarching magical traits. It doesn't have any specific magic types that it increases, any specific magic types that it decreases as a whole across all of the additions. It's bringing enough to the table already. It really doesn't need it. There are two layers that have a dominant element, and we'll get to them when we get to them. But in second edition, wild magic was diminished because of the plane's lawful nature. So that would just go into how law and chaos counter one another, because wild magic is based on chaos by going someplace that is inherently lawful, the effects of wild magic are diminished. I could see that in a way. I mean, it makes sense. I don't recall that being an effect in any of the other lawful planes we visited, though. The only other lawful plane that we've visited so far is Mechanus. Right. And yes, I'm pretty sure that... Actually, I don't know. If it was a thing in Mechanus, it didn't come up in the episode, I don't think. Right. So that's why I don't recall it being an issue. Now, again... It makes sense in a weird way, but this realm's bringing enough to the table that that's just more bookkeeping if you want to do it. Sure, why not? Particularly if you're running like a party of sorcerers. Otherwise, though, you know what? A party of sorcerers would probably wind up one way or the other in the Nine Hells anyway, so why the hell not? So there are two different types of petitioners in the Nine Hells. In second edition, they were either left in their normal humanoid form 
Or if they were particularly vile, they were transformed into larvae, like what you saw in Hades. And then the normal petitioners would be tortured by the devils, being broken, burnt, and bled out. And then their bodies would reform, and then they'd go through it all again the next day. So think about Prometheus being chained to the cliff and having the eagle come and rip his liver out every day. Good times. Oh yeah, I'm sure they were. But in 3rd edition, they changed it up a little bit. The normal petitioners were made into these things called soul shells, which are these spectral ghosts that still bear some of the aspects of the mortal that they were. But their shapes get twisted and tortured by the devils to fit their whims and to fit the aesthetic of whatever layer of hell they happen to be on. Some do. Now, with Nine Hells, with this realm, the journey of the petitioners actually become quite involved and very interesting, and we wind up going all the way back to the Shadowfell of all places. I don't know if we want to cover that now or if we want to cover that later. Because well, again, it, it predates the Shadowfell. It does predate the Shadowfell, but uh, it and, goes to the Fugue Plane. Exactly. But and I don't know if you want to dive into full detail of that now, but I mean... Yeah, we was, can touch on it. Let's okay. go ahead. So yeah, the path of petitioner here is really interesting. So basically, if the person was already lawful evil, they come pretty much straight here from the fugue plane. But all petitioner's souls wind up going to the fugue plane first, and they're there for a while, and they're actually there up to 10 days so they can realize they're dead and make a choice to move on. And if they don't move on, then a god comes and kind of pushes the mom away. During that time, devils are allowed to be in the fugue plane to try to bargain with souls because, again, everything here is that whole lawful evil, Faustian bargains, that kind of thing going back and forth. That's how these devils gain prestige, gain power, gain rank. So it's very possible that a non-lawful evil soul or a lawful evil soul might try to make a bargain with a devil to be in a slightly better state or a slightly better plane or something they might think is slightly better make a bargain go there and then work through these different things their bodies are basically shredded and molded and mutilated every day and reset but even then from that point they can bargain to take different forms and some of those forms actually wind up becoming cannon fodder for the blood war where they actually have some personal form and sentience and so like i said just on a post-death journey there's a lot there to unpack so i was going to be getting to that oh i'm sorry (laughs) no you're fine you're fine that's why i asked (laughs) so the petitioners that used to be transformed into larvae are instead, starting in 3rd edition, transformed into lemurs, which are these mindless mounds of twisted flesh that are used as cannon fodder in the Blood War. The description that they use in 3rd edition was revolting blobs of molten flesh with vaguely humanoid torsos and heads. And they were mindless. They didn't have any real sentience of their own, but they were able to be commanded telepathically by devils and they would automatically obey the most powerful devil in the vicinity so that's how they were you know used as shock troops they just send a wave of them in against the demons to soften everything up before the bigger more powerful devils would come in after and clean up right and that's actually something i want to revisit and this might be a halloween episode i don't know but i actually want to do an episode specifically on the battles of the blood war just because i think particularly with the huge divide between the lawful the very organized version of the nine hells and the chaotic version of the pit and the demons versus the devils i think that would be a really interesting thing to show on the table 
it'd be very much like the Roman legions versus the barbarian hordes, that kind of thing. So I think just on a table would be kind of really awesome. I can definitely see doing a blood war episode because there is so much on the blood war that it will fill an entire episode. Yes. So have you made it to the first level yet? (laughs) Almost. Almost. The command structure of the devils. At the top, you have the Lords of the Nine. So that's Asmodeus at the tippy tippy top. And then as you go down, it is the other arch devils that rule each of the individual layers of the Nine Hells. The one on the first layer is the lowest ranked one of the Nine. And as you go down the list, their relative rank increases. Now, unless I missed it, because I was actually looking, because Asmodeus obviously is the prime here, but Mestasoph. Mephistopheles? Yes, I can never say his name correctly. I did not see where exactly he inhabits. He is on the eighth layer. Eighth, okay. So I was he's on say Kenya. He's, he was pretty high up there, but I never saw exactly where he landed. Okay, so we can move on. And perfect. Absolutely. And then under the Lords of the Nine, you have the Dark Eight. The Dark Eight are a set of eight pit fiends. Each one of them is a commander of one of the eight major armies of the Blood War. And they will come down to the ninth layer to Asmodeus's fortress once every 66 days. And they will convene a meeting to discuss the fronts in the blood war, where they're going to strike next, which devils should get promoted, which devils should get demoted, and go on and on about that. Now, I will say I saw several sources that was pretty much saying that by the end of fourth edition start a fifth edition the blood war had in fact concluded i don't know if you've seen that or we're going to get to it later well the blood war is still going on in fifth edition okay unless there is something in descent into avernus that i missed i will admit i have only skimmed that particular book looking for information for this episode because what I've seen is that the blood war has ended with a diabolic victory and Asmodeus has achieved greater godhood. Well, Asmodeus, depending on the source you're looking at, has always been either a near god or a god. Right. So from my understanding from various sources, he was a god, somehow lost a step or two. Well, he was cast down from the upper realms. Okay. Initiated the blood war. And at the end of the Blood War, it's considered a diabolic victory. And he has achieved not godhood, but greater godhood. Well, he is a greater deity, yes. Okay, yeah. So, But that's for later on in the episode. There's so many layers interweaving on all of this. There's layers on layers and plots within plots and wheels within wheels. And I just summoned my inner dune, Frank Herbert. So. All right, so let's go ahead and get started into the individual layers. So the first layer is Avernus, which if you've been playing 5th edition, you'll know from the Baldur's Gate Descend to Avernus module that came out last year, I think. I think it came out in 2020. It may have come out in 2019. I don't remember. That's unimportant. But it is the first layer of the Nine Hells. It serves as the battlefield of the Nine Hells in the Blood War. The River Styx crosses Avernus. It is described as a wasteland of charred rubble-strewn plains. And one of the aspects of it is that you have these 
fireballs that just streak through the sky. And at any given time, there is a 10% chance that one of them is going to fall out of the sky and hit you. If you've seen like the modern videos of like Iraq after the US military rolled through, or I'm trying to think of images that were present again, Afghanistan right after the US forces run through, or even like Stalingrad, where it's been just a long city siege, and you've got shells of building and there's rubble in the streets. And that's kind of what this looks like, again, just because it is constantly a front for war and conflict. Yeah, but even less so because there are no structures out in the middle of everything. So everything's been further reduced, yeah. Yes. That's the rubble. Absolutely. So the seat of power in Avernus is the bronze citadel. It was once a giant citadel built of bronze, but now it has been built up as a massive fortification. There are 12 concentric walls bristling with war machines that surround it. The defenses are constantly being expanded by petitioners and lemurs and imps. And one of the passages from the third edition Manual of the Plains is, the construction is so pervasive that bone scaffolding is as likely to be supporting a given wall as not. I mean, that really strikes an image. And again, that kind of brings up that whole Roman... Because the Romans would build walls within walls for various things. You know, Julius Caesar had his very famous double wall while sieging... Uh, I can't remember the name of the city, while he was in Gaul. So again, this very much that medieval, ancient military entrenched position, it brings those types of images to mind. So the Bronze Citadel is the seat of the Lord of the First. So who is the Lord of the First? Well, that depends on which edition you ask. (laughs) In second edition and third edition, it is a pit fiend named Bell, who is a favored pit fiend of Asmodeus. And in third edition, he is said to have overthrown Zeriel to take control of Avernus and that he keeps her hidden away as a prisoner somewhere. Again, that would be a very fitting thing for the Nine Hells. So in fifth edition, in the intro leading into the Descent into Avernus module, it says that Zeriel came later, that Bell was already the Lord of the First. And whenever she was captured on her assault on the Nine Hells, Asmodeus turned her into an archdevil and made her Lord of the First, supplanting Bell and making him her subordinate. Classy. So I'm going to just assume that that is a 5e retcon in order to have the super awesome character of Zeriel play a more dramatic role in the module because the module is built around the entity that is Zeriel and how she interacts with the nine hells. So by changing that little bit of lore, they are able to make it a little bit more dramatic. I could see that. And honestly, the devils are constantly trying to win advancement and one up each other anyway. So in sixth edition, it could just as easily flip and again so now we've got some office rivalry going which again is perfectly fitting for the environment so i am okay with that so one of the major aspects of avernus is that all portals that open to the nine hells open in avernus this is by the will of asmodeus you cannot teleport into a lower layer of the nine hells if you open a portal to the nine hells it will open into avernus regardless of where you want to go in the Nine Hells. So this is very much an all roads lead to Rome type thing. And again, I like that. It does. I really like the lawful planes because everything is so clearly defined. You know where you're going to wind up within 
a reasonable range. It's not like you're going to wind up on the 214th layer of the abyss or whatever. You're, right. You're here. Say hi to Zeriel. Wave your hat as you pass. And let's go on further down. Well, maybe. <laughs> because you do have to have a writ of passage in order to pass through the Nine Hells. And so you would have to get a writ of passage from an entity of substantial power on the layer that you want to go to in order to go to that layer and in order to travel on that layer. And there are some entities that can give you passage to multiple layers. Asmodeus is the only one who can give you a writ of passage to go through layers one through eight. Apparently nobody is ever given permission to go to the ninth layer who is not a devil. Did you ever play Final Fantasy VII? I started it. I never got very far into it. Okay, so in Final Fantasy VII, fairly early on when you're still in Midgar, towards the end of Midgar, you fight through the Shinra building and it's supposed to be like 66 or 70 stories high and everything goes through and like you can do something and like skip or run up like take stairs up to like the 50th or 60th level and then after that you have to like find a person or steal a key card or defeat a boss that drops a key card for each successive layer or level after that and this kind of has that feel you know you have to run the errand you have to get the MacGuffin you have to kill the guy drop the key card to get to the next layer continue the quest type thing yeah it's kind of like Sylphco in the first generation pokemon games yeah the Sylphco building anyway i can see that anyway anyway <laughs> did we say rabbit trails yeah there's so many so there's one other major landmark of note in avernus and that is the pillar of skulls the pillar of skulls is a stack more than a mile high with all of the demonic skulls claimed by devils in the blood war it is literally just a giant pile of skulls i just want to print this for like a table mini and just set it there i mean skulls for the skull throne and whatnot but yeah i just kind of want a tower of skulls it says that some of them are small so they're going to be like quasit skulls and that some of them are as big as a house so big ones small ones some the size of your head yeah big ones small ones some as big as your head (laughs) (laughs) lord knows i would never have to do this for mufasa (laughs) and the pillar of skulls stands just outside of the staircase that leads down into dis the second layer and the other thing that happens to be right by the pillar of skulls is this cave where this dragon god that you may know of named tiamat lives Yes, Tiamat lives in this cave next to the Pillar of Skulls in Avernus. Again, let's put this in perspective here. Tiamat, the prime evil dragon, is only on the first level of the Nine Hells, and she's not even freaking in charge. So, (laughs) there is a reason for this. There is a contract between Tiamat and Asmodeus that only Tiamat and Asmodeus know the terms to that keeps Tiamat in her cave protecting the entrance to Dis. So she only comes out of her cave with her five great worm consorts, one of each of the chromatic colors, if the demons happen to get too close just to squash some demons to keep them from getting into Dis. Her entire job is to keep the demons on the first layer. I was going to say, who needs a three-headed hellhound when you've got a Tiamat? Yeah, you you don't need a three-headed hellhound when you have a five-headed dragon god. We've got a Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) It is said that her horde is stashed away in this cavern that she lives in, and it is said to equal the treasuries of a hundred worlds. Oh my. Because she is, you know, the chromatic dragon god. So, do you want to go on an adventure? I've got this great tip. (laughs) Yeah, let's not. (laughs) 
and I do not want to go raiding the Horde of the Dragon Queen. <laughs> I have that module on my shelf, the Horde of the Dragon Queen. I have not read that module yet. I have started that one. Before I finished moving, we started the Horde of the Dragon Queen, and that leads to a second module, the Rise of Tiamat, I believe is the second module. Okay, yeah. I can never remember which one's first and which one's second. Horde of the Dragon Queen is the first one. Okay. So far, it is very much an Earthly Realm Yes. Horde. Right, shiny. All right, still, rabbit trails. Moving along, as we mentioned, where Tiamat lives is at the top of the staircase that leads down into Dis. Dis being the second layer of hell. So the second layer, Dis, is a layer of steep-walled mountain valleys, kind of labyrinthine in their nature. Think of the scene in Return of the King where... Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli go riding into the valley to get the army of the dead. Okay. That's the sort of scenery that I'm picturing with the spires of stone that they're riding through. Yeah, I can totally see that. Now, again, the city of Dis and Dante's Inferno, it's the fourth, possibly the fifth. I possibly, believe it's the fourth. yes. In Limbo, again, you have the nine circles of hell and Dante, the seven deadly sins, Limbo, and Dis. And Dis is kind of your midway point, so it would be your fourth layer. And in that place, it was a weird medieval metropolis. So again, big stone walls, you do have your spires. So it does kind of still fall along those lines. But really one of those cool locations in the story. It's actually one of my favorites. Yeah, but the city of Dis dominates this layer of the plane. As far as I can tell, the staircase that leads out of Avernus goes down an iron spire into the city of Dis. The Iron City of Dis is built from red hot iron. So it is constantly glowing. It has this constant heat shimmer to it. Casual, unprotected contact with walls or the cobblestones on the road will result in fire damage. Or it will use the exhaustion rules for heat, like with the Plane of Fire in 5th edition. You can walk forever and not get anywhere. You can only get where you're going if you have a very clear, defined idea of where you need to go. And there's nobody of power who's trying to stop you from getting there. And again, this is the exact opposite of the Abyss again, where you could only get somewhere if you had no set destiny. All of the important devils and officers in the Blood War have their own palaces and mansions within the city because a very common trait among high-level devils is an immunity to fire. So they are not bothered by the fact that the city is constantly a glowing red, which would be probably about, let's see here if I can remember correctly, is somewhere around 1300 degrees. Yeah, I was going to say, so you as a welder would feel right at home with being surrounded all day, every day by glowing hot metal. Not this much. <laughs> <laughs> Even this would be a bit much for me. And I was going to say, because again, I do lapidary work and there's a bit where I do some silversmithing and stuff like that. And I grew up in a desert, so I'm used to heat. Being around that much hot metal just in itself does something to you mentally. Yeah, and it does drain you mentally. It is very exhausting just being around it. So, I mean, an entire city of that, I could totally see using these exhaustion rules. Yeah. So the city is in a constant state of flux. You'll have one batch of petitioners building a new building and a second set of petitioners is coming along right behind them and tearing it down again because Dispater, the Lord of the Second, who dominates this layer of hell and resides within the city of Dis, he is a very paranoid individual and he constantly shifts the city plan of Dis so that maps remain inaccurate. By the time you get done drawing a map, it's wrong because so many of the other aspects of the city will have changed. Where the roads go 
change, where the buildings are change. That in itself is historically something that was done, again, referencing World War II and the German Eastern Front as they invaded Russia. That was one thing a lot of the Russian civilians and even the officers did, is either they would strip the road signs or they'd switch the road signs. And because there was so much space between Russian settlements and cities and farms and stuff, the German army would generally get bogged down in the mud, completely lost, completely disoriented. They think they'd be going to Stalingrad or to Moscow or somewhere else and wind up like two, three hundred miles way off course. Supply lines completely got screwed up. It was hard to coordinate, obviously, movement and things like that. So... Again, this kind of making sure the maps constantly change is, again, a very old, very time-tested way of disrupting your enemy, keeping things going. If you kind of want a mental picture, kind of think of the shifting staircases in the Harry Potter books and in the first couple of movies where the staircases always shifted. So it wasn't like you just go to your Hogwarts house or whatever. You had to figure out where the stairs were leading you before you could go where you were going. Well, you know, just the general concept of a labyrinth where the passages actually change as you go through them. Yes. But speaking of Dispater, Dispater is the Lord of the Second. He doesn't have a clearly defined infernal origin type. He is a supernaturally tall humanoid with dark hair, tiny horns, fancy clothes, and a description that I found in 5th edition, he has a cloven left hoof. Just one. Just <laughs> And he carries around a rod of power, which is his symbol of office, which in 3rd edition was a plus 5 mace that also acted as a rod of rulership, which basically lets you dominate 300 hit dice worth of creatures. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> and if you had at least a 12 intelligence, you got a saving throw on that. Nice. If you didn't, sucks to be you. Now, see, in real life, I could see myself rocking a 12 intel. I think that is within realm of reason for me. Yes. That 16 will save, not a chance in hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. So one of the aspects, at least in third edition, was that while he is within his iron tower, he's nearly invincible, which means that he never really leaves his iron tower. About the only thing that can get him out of his tower is a direct summons from Asmodeus to come to him in the ninth layer. While he was within his Iron Tower in third edition, he got a plus 20 bonus to his armor class, to his spell resist score, and to all of his saving throws. That's insane. Yes. Plus 20 to all of those. That's wow. Yeah. So going back to the city of Dis for a minute, there are a couple of locations within the city of Dis that I do want to touch on as we're going through. The first one are the safe zones. So there are areas of the city that are hospitable to outsiders, and there are some planar travelers that have set up shop or set up residence within these parts of the city. This is where the interplanar bazaars happen to be. This is where if you are a planar traveler, you're going to go here to find an inn that you can actually stay at that won't cost you your soul. Literally. Yes, literally. Naturally, Dispater doesn't trust any of them because who would willingly go to hell and buy a house to live there? (laughs) What psychopath would do that? So he tries constantly to drive these people out of the city through a combination of harassment, taxation, and heightened surveillance. So it's New York. It's most any major city in the United States at this point. We have opinions. Um, (laughs) But the other major location that I did want to touch on before we continue is Mentiri, the prison of Dis. 
Mentiri has two wings. The first wing is called the Bastille of Flesh. It's where all of the non-lawful evil prisoners are kept until the devils can work with them sufficiently to shift their alignment. Because if they die, they only get to harvest the souls if they are lawful evil in alignment. Or if they enter into a contract that would grant them control of their soul. Correct. So this includes, you know, mercenaries from the Blood War. This includes paladins that just happen to be in the Nine Hells. This includes captured higher level demons. I'm sure there's going to be a Warlock or 12 in here. Probably. And so they are kept there and tortured and debased and all of those other horrible things that devils do until they become mentally alignment shifted. And then they take them out and execute them so that their souls can be harvested. Woohoo! Congratulations, you're free. Congratulations, you're staying here for eternity. Ha 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 ha! Pretty much. <laughs> the other wing of Mentiri is the Bastille of Souls, which is a warehouse for souls that were captured in raids, souls of mortals who died in Bator that are not lawful evil. And because Dispater can't use them because they're not lawful evil, he retains them and uses them as a form of currency. He just keeps them in the box, kind of like, what was it, the warehouse at the end of Indiana Jones? Yeah, <laughs> it's Warehouse 13. Yeah, totally. That's what it is. It's Warehouse 13. It's where all of the souls go. So basically, if you're going through the Nine Hells and your chaotic good druid dies, you're not going to be able to resurrect them because their soul is going to go into Mentiri. And then you're going to have to negotiate to get their soul back. And so that's basically what they do is if somebody dies on the Plains of Bator, a mercenary in the Blood War gets killed, they will take this soul and they'll stick it in storage and then they will send a representative to their family on the material plane and say, hey, we have so-and-so's soul. Do you want it back? Or is it going to languish in hell for all of eternity? And then they will negotiate a contract which will result in them claiming a soul that they can actually use in exchange for the soul that they have in storage, which they will release and it will pass on to its appropriate afterlife. So story hook time, you ready? Okay. So your level one, two, whatever, five, however you want to start this, but your party has received said contract offer from Dispater? Well, it would probably be a subordinate, but yes. From a subordinate or Dispater, but anyway. So your party gets said contract and you go basically on a soul heist. And so with you, this would be a great reason to bring a Warforged with you. So you have a vessel to stuff said soul into once you get it. But literally, you'd have to fight your way, go through, find a portal into hell. That obviously stick you on the first layer. You'd have to fight your way through the first layer into the second layer into the Bastille of Souls. Bastille of Souls, yeah. Yeah, the Bastille of Souls. Find the right soul. Somehow snatch it, abduct it, bargain for it, whatever. Stick it into the Warforged and then carry it out. That would be a huge arc just in itself. But yeah, so story time. <laughs> All right. The third layer of the Nine Hells is Mineros. Uh, Mineros is a fetid swamp of mire and pollution. So you got your acid rain, you got your nasty winds, you've got flesh slicing hail, which is fun. The temperature varies depending on where you are. Some spots are so cold that the swamp freezes over. Some spots are so hot that the water boils. And the swamp itself is crisscrossed with mountains of volcanic glass. So these very literally sharp, jagged peaks of obsidian that just crisscross 
the swamp. So this level starts a lot like the actual second level. No, it's actually still the third because you do have Limbo. But again, going back, referencing Dante, the level of this was Wrath in general, I believe. But this was a level where generally suicides were from, where the bodies were forced to run through a swamp full of brambles that would constantly scratch them, and there was harpies that would pick at them. But again, that thick, fetid swamp with a lot of jagged spikes, lots of scratchy, scrapey, textury things that make my skin crawl, and I just grossed myself out. So there we go. Yay, texture yeah. fixations. Oh, it's in there. It's in the recording now. Yeah. So the waters of the swamp are home to, quote, terrible creatures with no names that the devils native to the lair that keep them from going far from the cities within this lair because they don't want to get got. They don't even know the identities of what these things are. They just know that they don't want to be anywhere near them. Fair enough. <laughs> so the main city is also called Mineros. It's also called the Sinking City because it is slowly sinking into the cesspit of a swamp. So the first one sank into the swamp. The second one fell over and sank into the swamp. The second one fell into the swamp. The third one burned down, fell over, and sank into the swamp, but the fourth one stayed up. That's right. Who's got the huge tracks of land? (laughs) So one of the things that they do with the petitioners and slaves that they capture is that they are constantly being sent into the swamp to quarry stone and they dive down into the depths of the swamp to quarry stone to continually build up the city to keep the city above the level of the swamp but despite all of their efforts it is still slowly sinking so again this was kind of unpleasant again we talked about how annoying that constant heat and like i said it does really drain you if not bend around a foundry or anything like that it does mentally drain you this like i said one i just quicked myself out with the texture thing talking about the brambles from the second layer to go even further wet socks and wet shoes all day every day it's like stepping through that thick mud where like you've got to like pull your foot out so it's exhausting and then you always have that wet sock soggy foot feeling yeah yeah i'm just not enjoying this place that much no absolutely not (laughs) so mineros is where the lord of the third mammon the viscount this is where he rules he is a 30 foot long serpent with a humanoid upper body According to 3rd edition, he is a nearly divine power level entity. He was formerly an ally of Dispater and Mephistopheles, but following the most recent rebellion attempt against Asmodeus called The Reckoning, he was the first one of the Archdevils to abase himself before Asmodeus. And so now none of the other Archdevils trust him, and he will probably be the last person picked for the dodgeball team. The phrase used in the books was a turncoat's turncoat. I got it. So this made Benedict Arnold seem upstanding and reliable. Gotcha. But the other city of note within this layer is called, and I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this, the Jangling Hiter, H-I-T-E-R, or the City of Chains. It is a city that is actually suspended from the underside of Dis. And it's where the Chitons, the Chain Devils, from right and again that goes back to what we were talking about in the first word the low point of the first level was the staircase going down which led directly into dis the low point of dis will be the chains that suspend the jangling geiter so again the low point of each level is the high point of the next level beneath connects to yes yes and it's speculated that the chains are attached to the underside of dis because there's a constant hailstorm up above that obscures the top end of the chains so you can't actually see where they are attached but the most 
important detail of this particular city is that there is a landing on the infinite staircase that opens up into an undisclosed location within this city. It is the only way into the Nine Hells that doesn't go through Avernus. Interesting. This is how you get in from Sigil going down the infinite staircase. Okay. So even Asmodeus's will can be tweaked and messed with just a little bit, which is kind of fun. Just going off of lore, what I'm thinking is the Lady of Pain, who runs Sigil, is a powerful enough entity that Asmodeus cannot deny her entry. That would make sense. That is the logic that I'm going to use. No, that makes perfect sense. I'm just thinking like as an adventurer or as an NPC, I would use that entrance as much as I can just to piss Asmodeus off. And this is probably why I would die a horrible, horrible, horrible death. Right. So the fourth layer is called Phlegathos. Which is just a fun name. Yes. It is a fiery layer. Seas of molten magma, heat hurricanes, choking smoke, and pyroclastic ash. It is basically the plane of fire's evil cousin. Right. This is when you get the concept of like the biblical Gehenna, the fiery lake, the devils with the pitchfork, the brimstone. But it is this plane is what that was based off of or vice versa, um, depending on what you want to think came first. Now, this is one of the elementally dominant layers of the plane. This particular layer, surprise, surprise, is fire dominant. So what this meant in older editions is that Fire damage was maximized, cold damage was halved. And one of the notes in the book was, creatures without fire immunity or resistance are quickly immolated. I think the technical term is a snowball's chance. Yeah, I forget exactly how much damage. I think it was 1d6 plus 1 fire damage every minute that you're in the layer. Oh, wow. Now, were yeah. you a fan of Animaniacs? I was not. I unfortunately did not have the opportunity to watch them while it was on. Gotcha. So they have one episode that I love. Animaniacs, they actually go through Dante's Hell, but they get to one of the hotter areas that's kind of like this, and Wacko, the younger of the three, runs back up to the surface of the earth, grabs a snowball real quick, runs back down, holds it in hands and melts, and it didn't stand a chance. <laughs> yeah. So... So the primary city within Phlegathon is called Abramok. It resides within the caldera of a nearly extinct volcano. So it is made from hardened magma. So it looks like it'll have that blobby look that you get with the volcanoes in Hawaii. Right. That, yeah. that black blobby look. It is rumored to be the grave of a deity slain by Asmodeus. Interesting. Which is why it is a cooler area within this plane of fire because it does offer protection from the heat so you don't have to worry about the fire dominant heat aspect to the plane while you're within the city now i know close to by where we live there's hot springs but have you ever actually been to an active hot spring um as in like an active geyser i know like like yellowstone no yeah like yellowstone again where i grew up in california there were some hot springs like mammoth and near shasta lake some old volcanic things and again there is something about being in that environment, there's generally a lot of sulfur. It's not quite nauseous. It's not quite nauseating, but it does kind of change your headspace a little bit just because it is hotter than normal. There's definitely a feel to the area around that. So you talk about this and I kind of get that like bubbling mud pool where it's not scorching hot, but it's definitely hot. There's some gases in the air that you're probably not used to breathing all the time. So you're probably going to be like a little lightheaded, a little dizzy. I mean, personally, if I was there, if I had a party there for a long time, I'd probably like start maybe fudging some will saves or throwing some disadvantage in there possibly. Or just go with the exhaustion rules again. Yeah. 
again, a great option. So Abramok is the home to the Lords of the Fourth, um, Lady Fierna and Archduke Belial. Belial being an entity that you might be familiar with if you are familiar with the real world devils of note. Think he was in Dante's Inferno. Don't recall him being mentioned in Dante's Inferno. He is firmly mentioned in Diablo 3. Yes. Uh, Belial was the Lord of Lies, I believe. Yes, that is correct. So Fierna is Belial's daughter, and he allows her to wear the mantle of power in public, but in actuality, they are co-rulers of this lair. Fierna has a palace made from obsidian and wrapped in blue flame that sits on the lip of the caldera, and she has a spiral staircase that leads down into her pleasure domes, oh my. <laughs> is what they were called. Uh, okay. And the floors and walls of the staircase are grated, and under and behind the grates are all prison cells. And so, you know, paladins and unicorns and such good aligned creatures are captured and put into there where they're subjected to the heat of the plane. And if she gets bored, she takes her spear and pokes one of them. As you'll do. And one of the notes in third edition was that most of the cells are occupied by the growing ranks of her ex-lovers. Hell hath no fury. Yeah. And most of her current paramours can see the fate that awaits them whenever she loses interest in them, but they don't really care. You know what? I'm just going to safely step back and away from this one. I'm not going to make any kind of comment that's going to get me in trouble. Okay. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) And the last area of note within this layer is the Pits of Flame. It is an area of punishment where devils are locked inside of iron balls and suspended on cantilevered arms inside of these massive columns of fire. And even devils that are immune to fire feel pain whenever they are subjected to this heat. They may not actually be harmed by it, but they still feel the pain. So it is... The uh, worst hamster ball ever. Yes, absolutely. And so they will dip them into these mile-high pillars of fire and just let them cook there for a while. And then they'll pull them out, and then they'll duck them back in. And they'll pull them out and dunk them back in. Have you ever, like, hit the vent on an Instapot too early and not pulled your hand back fast enough? I know what this is going to feel like. Probably. All right, moving along. Stygia is the fifth layer of hell. And it is... About as opposite to Phlegathos as you can get. Because it is a realm of cold and ice. Most of the area is drowned in a sea of ice flows and icebergs. And the river Styx actually has a very substantial portion of it running through this particular layer. But the icebergs and the fiendish sharks of the layer make it very difficult to navigate this stretch of the river Styx. And apparently the sky is also constantly ripped asunder with lightning, making flying very dangerous. So unless you were, say, a blue dragon, who would be uncomfortable because they're desert-dwelling dragons, and this is, you know, a plane of ice, blue dragons would probably be the only ones that would really feel comfortable flying through this, because you would have to have something that was immune to lightning to be able to fly through these lightning Maybe storms. some of the djinn? Possibly. I don't know. I don't think that the djinn are actually immune to lightning. Oh, okay. They might be, but I don't think they are. So, again, this lightning, again, referencing Dante, I'm going to do it a lot, probably all the way down. So, one of the neat things with Dante's Inferno was he actually t- tied in a lot of modern politic people. So there was a lot of snark in this book. If you ever get a chance to read it, 
Audible or whatever, really do it. And then if you can go back and listen to the history, it's a lot of fun. But in the layer of pride, there was a general who basically held a city and he claimed at one point that not even God could tear the city down. So this person's punishment in Dante's Inferno and Hell was he was bound to his feet by the city wall while constantly being struck by lightning. And so that's kind of what I envisioned with this, where it talks about the sky being constantly rent by lightning because again, there was just so much lightning and just constantly being struck over and over and over again. Yeah, I forgot about that part. Yeah, like I said, I love the Inferno. It is a great read. It really is. Okay, so the main city within Stygia is Tantlin, the city of ice. It is built on an ice flow and it has a harbor on the river Styx. So there is actually a decent amount of interplanar trade going on in this city because you can get on a boat and sail down the river Styx. It is going to be mostly your evil individuals because the river Styx only goes through the lower plains. But that is some place where, you know, you're going to find Yugoloths, you're going to find the night hags. Anyone coming down from like Akron, the eternal battlefield. Now that is something you mentioned that we've not brought up to this. And yes, you will see a lot of Yugoloths. And we did mention the Yugoloths again. We're kind of like a neutral mercenary. They play both sides in this blood war. And we don't really see them in large numbers here in, in the Hells too terribly much. But they are definitely there and they are definitely working their contracts. Absolutely. So Tantalin is at the start of third edition in absolute chaos because the previous Lord of the Fifth, Garion, was slain by Asmodeus as part of the reckoning, as part of the most recent attempt to overthrow. Because again, it's all about a constant power struggle and trying to one-up each other. It's like a lava lamp in a way where you have little blobs that constantly rise and fall. And so what has happened here is Asmodeus made an individual named Prince Levistus, who was a previous lord of one of the layers. I can't remember which. I think Phlegathon. Levistus was imprisoned by Asmodeus well before the Reckoning. He attempted to seduce his consort, Bensosia, and when she rejected his advances, he killed her. And so Asmodeus, not being real happy about that, stuck him in an iceberg on Stygia. Again, even by the layers of Hell's Reckoning, corporate sexual harassment, kind of an extremely shitty thing to do. Don't do it. You'll get stuck in an iceberg. (laughs) Yeah. But he had previously been the Lord of the Fourth. And so whenever he got frozen in carbonite, his position moved on to Belial. He was stuck in this iceberg for eternity. Whenever Garion was killed following the reckoning, Asmodeus, for whatever reason, decided to make Levistus the Lord of the Fifth. Seeing if he's learned his lesson. He's still trapped in the iceberg. However, he did not receive Garion's power when he ascended like he was supposed to. Instead, Garion's power was moved to Glacia, who was one of Garion's lieutenants, and who is now Lord of the Sixth. And we'll get to talking about her in a little bit because she is a really interesting character. But it was basically a, yeah, I'm going to give you power over this realm. You're not going to be able to do anything about it. I like it. And again, it comes back to that whole little lava lamp where everyone's kind of raising and falling at different rates. And he is able to communicate telepathically with any devil within 10 miles of his iceberg at will. And so he has in the past tried to, you know, figure out ways to modify his iceberg so that he can sail out into the river Styx 
and pass out of this layer so that his iceberg will start to melt. And invariably, his iceberg always ends up coming back to the mouth of the harbor at Tantalin. I love it. And it is said that every time he starts to feel like he's making a little bit of headway, when he starts to turn around, you can hear Asmodeus chuckling. <laughs> I love it. That I love it, so yeah. horribly evil. That's what you get for sexual harassment. Don't do it. Don't do it. So near Tantalin, there is a cleft between a pair of icebergs that leads down to an underwater realm called Sherushk. And this is where Sekola, the god of the Sahagan, lives. Oh my. And the fiendish Sahagan and sharks of his realm will occasionally go out to the river Styx to harry boatmen and interplanar travelers and capture them and devils to bring back as sacrifices to Sekola. Because, you know, the river of death wasn't scary enough. Let's throw in some demon sharks just for fun. It is specifically said that Sekola's influence is sufficient enough to protect these Sahagan and these sharks from the mind-wiping effects of the sticks for short periods of time. That's impressive. Well, I mean, it's a god. Yeah, but still, that's impressive. Moving along, we're on to the sixth layer, Malbolg. Malbolg is an endless rocky slope down which boulders are constantly rolling. Many of the boulders are building-sized, and they will pulp anything unlucky enough to get in the way. Moving around anywhere in 3rd edition required a climb check to just move because it is a mountainside that is that steep. I like it. So with this, I've been in situations before, again, kind of in this year in Nevada, there's some areas where the sides of the mountains are largely shale. But in the beginning of Return of the King, when Frodo and Samwise are on that hill headed into Mordor, and they're on that rocky shale surface, and they're hiding underneath the elvish cloaks. But it's kind of that where it's this loose packed rock that still shifts real easy. Kind of a mental image there. Right. The devil's on this particular layer, have a number of copper-clad fortresses that are designed to deflect the worst of the rockfall. So I'm thinking sort of like teardrop-shaped, where it's kind of a wedge going up the slope. I bet they'd ring like a terrible, terrible bell. Oh, I'm sure that it's nasty to, to be in one of these. Well, I'm just thinking, anyway, just the noise on the outside, too. It'd be like constantly rattling like your know, pots and pans. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm like totally squeaking myself out with the sensory stuff today. And the sky is supposedly filled with boiling clouds of red steam, just because we needed that additional sensory layer. There is a cavern on one of the slopes called Magoth Thig, and it is rumored to be a location where the Batorians, who are the predecessors of the Batezu, might still be alive. Interesting. They said that the walls of the cavern glow with this brain-numbing gray light, and that any devil that is sent there by one of the Lords of the Sixth to investigate the cave never returns. Very interesting. And periodically, you have these terrible cries that echo across the layer that emanate from this cave. The petitioners can't hear them, but the devils can, and it terrifies them. I like it. So that's playing up that whole, this is where the Batorians are. This is where they have retreated for whatever reason. So the Lord of the Sixth, this is one of those titles that has had a great deal of turnover over the editions. Malbolg has a reputation for chewing up and spitting out Lords of the Nine. One of the earlier Lords of the Sixth was Moloch. Moloch, for those of you playing at home, if you 
recall the image from, I think it was the OD&D player's manual, the statue where the guy is prying the big jewel out of the statue's eye. I believe you're correct. I can't recall exactly. Yes. That is a statue to Moloch. So is that like that six foot statue they found in Iran with the gold eye? Oh, that wasn't a statue. That was actually a human body. Oh, was that actually a, a skeleton? Oh, even better. Yes, that was presumed to be a high priestess of whatever religious cult happened to be in that location at that particular time in history. It is presumed that that's who that was. Gotcha. I'm sure it's a gateway to some of this stuff here. <laughs> so Moloch was one of the previous Lords of the Sixth. He failed Asmodeus and was turned into an imp. Damn, that's a hell of a devotion. And he is still an imp flying around on Malbolg somewhere, and he is still plotting to try and get back into Asmodeus's good graces so he can get back to his archdevil form. This is like the annoying little brother, I'm going to tattle on everybody till mom likes me better type thing. This guy's probably annoying as hell. <laughs> Probably. The previous Lord of the Ninth was Malagard, who is called the Hag Countess. She was unique in the fact that she was not a devil. She was actually a night hag from Hades, who was one of Moloch's advisors and the one who convinced him to rebel, leading to his demotion. And it later turned out that she was just a placeholder, you know, just there to keep the throne warm until Asmodeus's choice could be arranged because she ended up basically the thought is that by Asmodeus's pure will, she ended up being grotesquely just expanded to a truly titanic size, but different parts of her body at different rates. So like her bones grew faster than her skin. So they sort of exploded outwards and wow. and like there's lots of stuff. This was something that happened between 3rd and 3.5, actually. This is a rough episode for century <laughs> stuff. I'm just putting that up there. Yes, but the current Lord, Glacia, makes her stronghold in the Night Hag's skull. Just as a reminder. Yeah, that just to give you a perspective on how big she ended up getting. And it took a very long time for her screams to stop. Long after she should have been clearly deceased. But anyway, talking about Glacia, I mentioned her in the previous layer. She was one of the lieutenants of Stygia, one of the Dukes of Stygia. And she happens to be Asmodeus's daughter. Of course. And so whenever Garion dies and Levistus becomes Lord of the Fifth, Garion's power as Lord of the Fifth does not pass to Levistus. It passes to Glacia. Asmodeus's daughter, who has now been promoted to Lord of the Sixth. And the demise of the Hag Countess, Malagard, led to the opening that allowed Glacia to step into the role. So it was all one big scheme by Asmodeus to establish his daughter as one of the Lords of the Nine with a substantial power base to hold her own against the other Lords of the Nine. And so Glacia was historically at odds with her father. And prior to the reckoning, she was in a romantic affair with Mammon, the Lord of the Third, which as one of the criteria of her ascending as Lord of the Sixth was that she cut off the relationship. Some rumors say that now that she is actually Lord of the Sixth, she has rekindled that relationship. There are some rumors that suggest that she is bitter that he did not fight Asmodeus to keep the relationship a thing that he didn't fight to keep her. And to quote the Manual of the Plains, given the labyrinthine nature of diabolical sexual politics, both could be true. 
So again, now we've got this whole office politic thing. We've got some interpersonal relationships, as you'll put it, among upper management. You've got daddy's daughter sitting there getting a corner office. This really does sound like hell. So one of the final aspects that I wanted to cover regarding this layer is that this layer of hell will literally eat you. If you fall to zero hit points, tendrils will come out of the ground and burrow into your body. Oh my. And suck out your soul and viscera and leave you a tethered screaming husk. Neither alive nor dead, but something else. Yes, the plane will literally eat you and you'll be kind of stuck there into the side of the mountain. I'm guessing for all eternity or until a boulder rolls down and pulverizes you pulps you yeah okay why not that's yeah that's not fun on that note we'll keep moving along <laughs> i got nothing yeah moving along maladomini the seventh layer is a wasteland dotted with ruined abandoned cities under a blood black sky it has a bunch of mining pits slag heaps and brackish canals that crisscross the land cover it like sores and petitioners are constantly building new cities on the bones of old cities and then they have to start over whenever the lord of the seventh expresses his dissatisfaction with the imperfection of the final product this particular layer i would feel has a very fallout feel to it because the abandoned cities are full of petitioners and mortals who don't want to be found I could see that, yeah. Because it has that very post-apocalyptic feel to it. And you're just building on the remains of whatever. Yeah, no, I can totally get that, yeah. So the primary city, the city that is under construction in Maladomini is called Malagard. And it is home to Beelzebul, the Lord of the Seven. And it is described as being a beautiful city of perfectly straight boulevards, fountains of delicate yet terrible visage, and towers that reach straight as an arrow into the blood black sky. This is like the pinnacle of the lawful evil. Everything is very art deco, you know, perfect 90 degree right angles or 45s or 30s. Everything is sharp. Everything is very linear. Again, playing into that why it has that fallout feel because that art deco feel does carry into the fallout architecture, the old world architecture, at least what's left. It really does. So yeah, I can totally buy into that. Another of the major cities within this layer is called Grenpoli, G-R-E-N-P-O-L-I, the city of diplomacy. So it is a domed city, and in order to enter, you have to go through one of four gates at the cardinal directions and undergo a thorough search during which all weapons are taken for your duration of the visit. Okay. Strife and open displays of magical aggression are illegal, and violators are slain immediately, because it is the city of diplomacy. Makes sense. Diplomacy has failed. <laughs> It is home to the political school of the Nine Hells, which is run by an Erinius named Mistem Word Twister. That is an awesome name. And it is where infernal nobility come to learn about treachery and deception. I'm liking this place. I'm really feeling okay here. Like I said, I like the Arc Deco feel. I'm not squicked out by any texture. We've got some clear, concise rules. I'm okay so far. Well, you're about to get squicked, so... Okay. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to talk a little bit about the Lord of the Seventh, Beelzebul was once an Archon of Celestia named Triel, and he was cast out of Celestia for some reason or another. I wasn't able to locate it in the amount of time that I had for research, but he was cast down into the Nine Hells. Asmodeus brought him in and made a deal with him and transformed him into an archdevil. He quickly rose through the ranks and 
whenever he ascended to the lordship of the seventh, he succeeded so completely that he expunged all memory of his predecessor. I like it. Because he is from Mount Celestia, he is a perfectionist. And so that is why the entire plane is covered with all of these ruined cities is because there's always something off that results in him scrapping it and starting over. And this is the part where you're going to get squicked. As part of his punishment for taking part in the reckoning, his angelic form was melted into this slug body with these little arms coming off the front. Little <laughs> T-Rex arms? <laughs> yes. Yes. So he is a giant slug with little T-Rex arms. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm picturing that. That would drive me batty. Okay. Not as bad as some of the other stuff, but that being able to want to do things. For me, wanting to be a perfectionist and not being able to directly affect or manipulate that one thing you can see and then trying to coordinate that through like two or three other people. Yeah. So Beelzebul is openly plotting against Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is openly plotting against him for the same reason, because both of them have one final goal, and that final goal is to unseat Asmodeus and rule as the Lord of the Nine Hells. That is their sole purpose, and Mephistopheles is the only thing standing between Beelzebul and Asmodeus, and vice versa. Right, so that's where you want, you have two rivals that are so busy fighting each other they can't fight you. Right. And also, as part of his transformation into slug form, Asmodeus cursed him so that any bargain that he strikes will end in tragedy for the other party. Interesting, but okay. And to drive that point home, the Hag Countess was an ally of his before her embiggening. (laughs) Great word. I love it. That is awesome and insidious both. So he gets exactly what he wants, but people are going to start to know that making deals with this guy is going to kind of suck. Oh, nobody wants to work with him. Right. They because know they know what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, that is a beautifully golden touch. I love it. All right. Continuing on, we're going to Cania, the eighth layer. We're almost done. It's another frozen layer, but far more substantially so than Stygia. The passage from the third edition book is glaciers moving as fast as a running man grind and crash against each other, sending avalanches of snow down upon any creature unfortunate enough to be caught between the battling titans. The frigid cold penetrates even the warmest natural clothing. Characters take 3d10 points of cold damage every round they are in an unsheltered area in Kenya. Oh my. Moving glaciers often reveal thousand-year-old corpses past victims of the merciless chill. Okay, so it's kind of like the top of Mount Everest. Yes. So like Phlegathos, which is fire-dominant, Kenya is cold-dominant, which would mean that cold damage is maximized, fire damage is halved. Again, referencing Dante for one final time. So in Dante's Inferno, the final layer where you do find Satan is actually frozen. And that was the level for betrayers. In Dante's Inferno, Satan is sitting there slowly chewing on the bodies of Judas, Cassius, and Brutus. Um, Again, all people who betrayed their friends or their close ones. But they're also in this constantly frozen state. So again, the fact that they ate layer which is the next to lowest layer is a frozen wasteland again ties back to that and makes a lot of sense so within some of the glaciers that are moving around on this layer you can see these distorted shapes within the glaciers and periodically mortals from other planes will melt exploratory shafts through the glaciers to figure out what some of these interesting looking blots are 
That's going to end so poorly. <laughs> Some of them are divas and archons. Others are spined creatures of unknown origin. We call those outsiders boys and girls. <laughs> I would go ahead and hazard and say that these are Batorians. Very possible, yeah. That this would be the result of a battle between the divas and archons and the Batorians. Yeah, that would be a very fair assumption. Other shapes are abandoned cities of prosaic or alien design. So again, playing into that whole, these are Batorian cities that were trapped under the ice whenever whatever flash freeze happened. So again, as I said, skipping past Dante now, we're just going to jump straight into Lovecraft and we've got Beyond the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. That's pretty much what this is. So at the heart of Kenya is the pit and the only access to the lowest layer of the Nine Hells. One of the glaciers has a staircase carved into it with multiple landings. And on each landing, there is a guard tower full of Gelugons, which are ice devils. It specifically says bristling with ice devils. Oh my. So that means get as many as you can fit on that square and just pack them in real tight. Okay, that's what you're fighting now. <laughs> well, I mean, they're a guard tower. Right. So you have floors, and each floor is full. So you might have, on each landing, you might have 300 ice devils. Oh my. Yeah, it's not fun. But like with all of the other layers, you could just try and jump into the hole. Yeah. But if you do, it's going to end poorly for you because there is a supernatural downdraft. So you have to be able to fly in order to avoid it. And in third edition, you had to make a DC 30 reflex save or you get smashed against the wall for 20d6 bludgeoning damage. You kind of bounce off the walls like the Emperor at the end of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yes, you get splattered on the wall. You turn into a red smear. Anyway, Lord of the Eighth is Mephistopheles. He is a nine foot tall humanoid with red skin, horns, and wings. And an awesome freaking beard. Picture Tim Curry from Legend. That's yeah. kind of how I picture him. Maybe with a bit more facial hair and a little less grotesque in the face. Because they did prosthetic his face a good bit. Yeah, they did. But that general look. He is a master spellcaster, focusing his mastery on Hellfire. Oddly enough. Yeah, and it is why he is able to exist within Kania without having an innate ice resistance because his hellfire keeps him warm and a fun fact he was once replaced in an engineered coup by someone called baron mullacroft there's not a whole lot of description of him aside from the fact that he was seven feet tall and he was grotesquely fat in that he was wider than he was tall it was baron mullacroft because harkonian was already taken but it turned out that Mullacroth was actually Mephistopheles in disguise. And he faked his own coup so that he could ferret out traitors within his ranks. Why the hell not? That's actually not a terrible idea. If you can do it, why not? If you can pull it off, pull yeah, it off. absolutely. And because he is a master of Hellfire, one of the things that he does is he gives out access to Hellfire as an incentive for spellcasters to enter contracts with him to get their souls to the point where he actually has an academy within his city of Mephistar that is specifically to teach people how to cast Hellfire. I'm looking in Harry Dresden's direction right now, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Mephistar is this mighty citadel that's perched on top of a glacier called Nargus. And Mephistopheles has control of the glacier. He can control where it goes. So if there's a force within his lair that he doesn't want to be there. He will just drive his glacier over top of them. 
Well, I mean, that makes sense. If you have control of Hellfire, you just kind of melt one side and just kind of push the block of ice, and it's going to refreeze behind it. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense as a, as a mode of transportation. And the last little detail about him is that he is both the greatest threat and greatest ally to Asmodeus because he also happens to be the godfather of Glacia, Lord of the Sixth. Of course he is. Again, Because getting, it's all family. It is all family. Again, we're getting that whole weird corporate upper level. Yeah, this sucks. <laughs> all right. Now we finally made it to the last layer. The last layer is called Nessus. It is a barren plain shattered by rifts that are thousands of miles deep. There is rumored to be a tributary of the Styx that flows into this layer and drops down into one of the trenches here, but few, if any, know exactly where it is if it actually exists. The only real landmark of note within Nessus is Malshim, the Citadel of Hell. It's immediately at the bottom of the pit when you climb down from Cania, and this is where Asmodeus, King of the Nine Hells, sits. It's also where the Dark Eight come to plan their assaults in the Blood War. But there is another location rumored to exist within Nessus called the Serpent's Coil. So this is playing off of the concept that the Asmodeus that is within the Citadel of Malshim isn't actually Asmodeus. It is a very elaborate project image spell that he has crafted to be his face. And so Asmodeus is Natalie Portman's in the Serpent's Coil? No. (laughs) (laughs) So Asmodeus was originally a Coatl proto-god. Okay. And when the Coatl god Jazirian cast him out of the upper realms into the lower realms, he crash-landed in the Nine Hells. And so the Serpent's Coil is this passage basically where his body burrowed through the rock until it came to a stop and his miles long serpentine body is sitting at the bottom of it okay and his wounds haven't fully healed because the only thing that he can consume to heal his wounds is the souls of disbelievers not agnostics but true atheists which as we have covered in previous episodes very few and far are between. very few and far between in a world where the gods literally can contact you okay i'm on board of this okay this makes sense and again if you go back the fact that asmodeus has a quaddle you know basically it was a winged serpent if you want to go back to the adam and eve story mythos however you want to phrase that but again that was a winged serpent so it makes perfect sense for asmodeus to have a quaddle form so i am on board with all of them. and supposedly it is because Asmodeus is in the Nine Hells. It's because Asmodeus is in Bator that the Great Wheel cosmology is structurally sound. Because whenever he landed, his power dispersed because he was only able to hang on to the lawful evil parts of his power because everything else was antithetical to the location he landed in. And so his entire goal is to destroy the Outer Plains thereby destroying the power structure that keeps him from getting his power, which means that his power will come back to him, and then he will be sitting here in the chaotic mess before creation and be able to recreate creation in his own image. That is the goal that he is shooting for. Is this the third or 
fourth species slash creature that's trying to destroy reality as it exists and reshape it. You have Asmodeus, you've got the Spellweavers. There was another one. Who were the other ones that were trying to break the Great Wheel? That would be the Queen of Chaos. Yeah, the Queen of Chaos. I mean, that's pretty much what we got. I'm thinking, was the Great Serpent part of that as well? And then something, something, something. Loki Serpent. Nithog? Yeah. Nithog kind of was going to kill the World Tree. Was going to kill the World Tree, which would destroy the cosmology as it was known. Because again, it shifted in 4th edition, which was kind of weird. Yeah. Well, that could have worked if Asmodeus had succeeded. Because... That would explain why the Outer Realms weren't really a thing in 4th edition. Yeah. Because, possibly, Asmodeus succeeded, he won the Blood War, he was able to consolidate evil under law, and that gave him enough power to sunder the Great Wheel. I could see that, yeah. I mean, as far as explaining lore, that makes a lot of sense. Again, I would have to look at the actual lore of 4th edition to see if that's actually how it played out. I was reading something that he actually gained a fair bit of power from a result of the spell plague. And I'm wondering if he had any actions in trying to engineer that. It wouldn't surprise me. Because he does predate all of the other archdevils in the Nine Hells. He has been the king of the Nine Hells basically since he crash landed here. Right. And so it does mention that he looks at the plots of the archdevils as complicated and convoluted and clever as they are as clumsy attempts compared to some of the archdevils of olden times it's never as good you know again back in the good old days is one of the bogey folks right right so this image that he has within the citadel is a humanoid image that he has crafted and makes people think is actually him because it provides a more readily digestible image. He's basically creating an avatar that they interact with. Okay, that makes sense. And he is capable of creating 10 copies of his avatar at a time, meaning that he can have an avatar on each of the nine layers of the nine hells doing whatever it is he needs to do plus one that's just plotting the blood war okay yeah that stands to reason and being an entity that is a god a cast down god that makes sense a cast out greater god so this is we're talking like paylor levels of power is what he has. But the badge of his office is a major artifact called the Ruby Rod. Um, the Ruby <laughs> Rod. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> I was thinking Ruby Rod from Fifth Element. Ah, okay. <laughs> I had completely missed that. I'm no, sorry. That, that, that had gone. Yeah, no, I was thinking Ruby Rod. <laughs> So in third edition, it stats out as a plus six unholy heavy mace that casts inflict critical wounds as a 20th level caster on a hit. Sweet Jesus. So that's 48 plus 20 necrotic damage on top of getting hit. On top of getting hit. And I'm sure he has multi-attack. Probably because it's third edition, so you automatically got multiple attacks with a decreasing hit chance. Well, I mean, that even if he's hitting it with, you know, as if a 20th level caster, then obviously he's going to be a level 20th. And so, I mean, you're going to have at least one or two bonus attacks, right? Oh, we are going well beyond. That's my point. He can probably take like three, four, five swings per turn with this damn thing. Base in third edition maxed out at four attacks. But anyway, on top of all of that. So the description of this, which I should have moved up in my notes, it is... 
crafted from a single ruby of incredible size, bathed in the blood of a thousand mortal sacrifices, quenched in Tiamat's acidic drool, and polished with the tears of 777 angels. Okay, I can kind of see that. And this plays into the lore snippet that he is actually a cast-out Coatl god because Jazirian, who is supposedly his twin and the one who cast him out of the heavens, resides in something called the Ruby Palace on Mount Celestia. So for this, again, I'm going to summon my inner lapidary here, but I see this rod not as like a gem crystal ruby, but more like it will be like a cabochon quality ruby or like a uh, star ruby. So you still got that bright red pigeon blood color, but it's not transparent. It's not see-through, but it is a very solid stout. If you ever get to see different qualities of ruby, obviously the gem rubies are the ones you can see through. Those are often lab created, not always. If they're not, they're stupid expensive. But even still what they call a cabochon quality, it's a dark red stone. But even those by themselves are gorgeous. And I could see this being that type of ruby. Absolutely. All right, so time for some of the at-will effects of this item. At-will, you can use a line of lightning, a line of acid, or a cone of cold. Uh, a 150-foot line or a 75-foot cone. Wow. That deals 20d6 damage. So again, just get that brick of d6 ready. It has an aura, the aura of might. So if somebody wants to attack you, they have to succeed on a dc19 will save, or they prostrate themselves before you and are helpless until the start of their next turn. Yeah, again, I'm never making that save. Ever. Not even once. And then the final thing is called the Reverie of Nessus. So once per day, you get bubbled in a 5-foot radius wall of force. And the area in 50-foot radius outside the sphere, but not in the sphere, becomes an anti-magic field that lasts for three rounds. That's nasty. On the first round, it purges any unwanted enchantment spells or effects. On the second round, it purges any diseases, poisons, or physical maladies, including missing body parts. Snazzy. And on the third round, it restores all lost hit points as well as all expended spell slots. Wow. And it automatically triggers if the wielder ever fails a save versus an unwanted enchantment spell or effect, such as Charm Person or Dominate Monster. That one I like, (laughs) but that one... That one could never come into 5th edition like this. Yeah, I was going to say, that one could almost be exploitable. Oh, it would be, absolutely. Because if it only triggers once a day, then you could exploit it early so he couldn't use it later. And that would be the strategist in me trying to figure out how to possibly negate this thing, because otherwise you're screwed. (laughs) Well, I mean, Asmodeus has the ability to, as an action, summon a pit fiend or two of any other type of devil at will. Okay, yeah, you're not winning this battle. Including aspects of the other archdevils. Okay, so what happens at the end of this battle is you fight Asmodeus, you fail that will save, you might win a couple others, and then at the end the DM grabs your character sheet and lights it on fire in front of you. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) But yeah, so that is Asmodeus, that is the ninth layer of hell, that is his boomstick. Yeah. And I think that is the Nine Hells. That is the Nine Hells. Like I said, we really could do an episode on each layer pretty easily. Pretty easily, We very likely will come back and revisit these at some point. We do need to finish our Modron March, however, before they leave us behind. So we have to follow the trail, as it were. Yeah, this has been a ride. And just that last little bit, geez. Yeah, ending on a high note. Right, so a couple of real quick little bits of business that I wanted to touch on before we get into our outro. First off, we are almost to our one year anniversary as a podcast. 
Huzzah! And so we have gotten a few friends of the show, Clark Rowanson from the Magic System Blueprint book, Mitchell Wallace, the guy from Penny for a Tale who did Necrobiotic, and our original friend of the show, Dr. Mary Crowell, who wrote our amazing, fun intro music. They are going to be joining us for a one-shot game that James is going to be running, I'm going to be playing in, that will be releasing on September 8th, which is going to be our one-year anniversary. It is the day before Tarasmus. Tarasmus Eve. Tarasmus Eve. So get yourself (laughs) some cake. So I'm really looking forward to that. I know they're really looking forward to that. And I'm hoping that you guys are good for having a three-hour actual play episode. It is not going to be a regular thing. It is definitely going to be a one-time deal, but... We're really excited to be doing that. Yeah, we are. So what we're doing is we are going to be balance testing. Like we always said, we were going to our first four characters we made as we started when we started making our characters. Finding character balance is a more difficult thing. And as we explored it more, we actually found written rules that were kind of hidden back in the DMG and some older models that actually give guidelines on how to keep things balanced. So our first four characters were just, we think these feel right, these feel fine, but we never actually got to put them on paper and test them out to see if they played well. So that's what we're going to do is we're actually going to test the mechanics of all these things because we can look at things and say, we think this is right, but is it right? So we built these toys and now we're actually going to play with them for a little bit. So like I said, we're really excited to be doing that because it is finally us delivering on a promise that we made a year ago a couple other little quick things first up is we have restructured our patreon tier prices to make them a little more affordable because i think our tiers were a little bit unreasonable so we have dropped the prices a bit so please go do check them out Additionally, we have decided to open up our Discord to non-patrons. So we have started by including a link in the show notes. So go ahead and follow the link through to our Discord, and we will see you there and chat with you and hopefully get some better feedback because the feedback we've been getting is few and far between, and we really want to talk to you people. So (laughs) thank you everyone for listening today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespearean insult page a day calendar role play prompts six days a week. They get posted to the Twitter account and cross posted to the Instagram and Facebook accounts at under common taste. As mentioned, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. So if you would like to help support the show financially, please go over there and become a patron. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, give us a rate and review. It helps increase our visibility. It lets us know what you enjoy hearing or what you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks once more for joining us. And we will see you next week in Mount Celestia. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. 
You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.